Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. From holding mock presidential debates as a kid in her living room to becoming the first Muslim woman mayor in America, Sadaf Jafar is passionate about being a voice for the voiceless and inspiring young women of color that they can be in positions of power too. Sadaf Jaffer is a scholar, an activist, and an elected official. She is a postdoctoral research associate at Princeton University where she teaches courses on South Asia, Islamic, and Asian American studies. Dr. Jaffat is also the mayor of Montgomery Township, New Jersey, where she has focused her administration on good governance, transparency, communications, diversity, and inclusivity. In this conversation, Sadaf shares her experience of what it was like campaigning as a Muslim woman for an elected position in a predominantly Republican town in New Jersey. She talks to us about what it's like being mayor in the midst of a pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement and how she's used her position to be the source of calm in her community. We get her perspective on the most difficult aspect of her job, how the job has changed her views on herself, as well as her thoughts on Joe Biden's pick of Kamala Harris as vice president. Please help us spread Mayor Jaffer's vision of resisting cynicism in politics and encouraging women, especially women of color, to run for office by sharing this episode with your community. So without further ado, I bring you Sadaf Jaffer. Sadaf Jaffer, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Sadaf, the reason I want to speak with you is because I think you're doing remarkable work. I think you are bringing a number of worlds together, and I think you as a representative figure in the role that you have is just crucial, especially at this moment. But I think probably for the purposes of this conversation, it's probably best to ask, how do you describe what you do right now? I'm a scholar, an activist, and an elected official. So that kind of is the umbrella for all the things that I do. My main job is that I teach at Princeton University in the South Asian Studies Department, and I teach courses on Islam and South Asia and South Asian American literature and film. My academic research and studies are really on women intellectuals in South Asia, Muslim intellectuals, and secular thought amongst Muslims in South Asia. So that's my academic world. But that academic world also brought me to New Jersey, uh, where I teach at Princeton, and I became involved in politics. And that involvement got me into running for office and then being an elected official on the local government, which is a township, township committee. And then since last year, I've been mayor of my town. And when I became mayor, I became the first South Asian woman to be a mayor in the state of New Jersey and the first Muslim woman to be a mayor in the country. And so that's obviously become a very big part of my life. Being a mayor is a huge responsibility. And then being a representational figure on top of that, you know, I really try to do my best to provide as much guidance and support for people as I can. And then obviously in this context, there's been so much that local officials have had to do with the COVID crisis, with demands for racial justice in our communities. Um, so all of those things I've been focusing on and working on. And my activism has you know, been related to human rights issues and women's rights issues. And I think that my elected role allows me to implement those values in the policies that I support. Mm -hmm. 
So I have to ask, as somebody who was trained to be a scholar, a researcher, and then to share with the world the things that you found, how is it that you decided to go into politics? What was the catalyst for you wanting to become mayor? I was always interested in policy and politics. I grew up in a family that watched the news a lot and listened to NPR. And to this day, my dad will send me newspaper clippings of articles that he liked and mail them to me. <laughs> so, I mean, we were always very informed about these things. And my dad also used to hold mock presidential debates between my brother and myself when we were kids. So there was something about that where, you know, you want to come up with solutions. You want to come up with ideas. How are we going to fix things? When I was younger, like when I was in high school, I thought I wanted to go into diplomacy. And I pursued a undergraduate degree in foreign service at Georgetown University and actually interned at the State Department and with the Marine Corps, but realized that I was very interested in my academic research and so decided to pursue a PhD. That was completely my path for a while. I think if you're doing a PhD, it does really consume everything about you and your life. But I did take a breath to campaign for President Obama you know, when he ran in 2008, and then again in 2012. And what was interesting about it was that a lot of people I knew were very active in like the anti-Iraq war protests and stuff like that. But when it came time to campaigning, I was one of the few grad students I knew who was campaigning. There was a Harvard College Democrats, and there weren't a lot of grad students who were going with me. And I would try to get people like, come on, let's go canvas, let's do something. And I guess I was somewhat unique in my circle of PhD scholars and um, students that I was actually actively campaigning. So that was really my first foray into electoral politics and it, or campaigning. And then I was so happy and excited when President Obama was elected. And I think I was like, okay, we're good, you know, we're good. And then a few years later, I realized how much obstruction, especially certain members of Congress were putting towards the president's agenda. And I was really disturbed by all of the hawkishness and the attempts to stop the Iran deal. I felt like, you know, I guess I always had an interest in diplomacy as being the solution, whether it was that I was going to be a diplomat or just advocating for that. Um, it was really seeing the opposition to diplomacy and the hawkish potentially escalation towards war that got me thinking and calling my congressperson in New Jersey at that time, who was a Republican, Leonard Lance, calling him regularly. And then I realized that, you know, it's so important to be an advocate. It's so important to call your congresspeople. But at the end of the day, he gets to make that decision based on what he thinks is right, what his values are. And so that's really when I started thinking people like myself and people who share my values need to have those elected positions. So we get to make the decisions based on our values. And yes, we want to represent what the public, what's best for the public, but ultimately, you know, you get to make the vote. And so I started talking to friends about it and someone told me about something called the Emerge Program, which is for women from the Democratic Party who want to run for office. And I Googled it and it was just starting in New Jersey. And so I participated in that in 2014. I was in the first class in New Jersey and... Um, that connected me with the state Democratic Party, the county Democratic Party, the local Democratic Party, because I think a lot of people just don't even realize what the party is beyond the DNC. Like all we hear about is the DNC, the DNC. And 
unless you have some sort of family connection, you wouldn't even necessarily know how to run for office. And so for immigrant communities and for women candidates, the formal training and mentorship programs are really, really helpful. And so that really got me started down this path. So I think if you start getting involved, if you start campaigning, if you start doing advocacy, especially at the local level, people will start noticing you. And everyone wants hard workers, people with good ideas. And that's kind of how I got on the path of running for office and winning elected office and ending up as mayor of my town. Now, Sadaf, I'd like to talk to you about the sentiment that you felt as you were campaigning and as you've realized that you won the seat of mayor. Can you un- unpack how that kind of happened and the strategies you implemented to kind of make that happen? And then ultimately what it was like once it was announced that you were elected as mayor? How did that play out? So in our town, we have a committee style government, which means that we have a five person committee and their elections every year. And then the committee selects its mayor and deputy mayor every January. So I ran for a township committee seat in 2017. And my strategy was really to focus on what my values were, that I want to build community. I want to increase communication and transparency. And so I attended as many meetings as I could. I went to as many events as I could, talked to people, asked them what they wanted. And I really saw my role as educational. And I think that, you know, being someone who has an education background, that comes naturally to me. And I realized that a lot of people in town did not even know what their local government was, who their mayor was, what the council was, how often you had elections. And so my first question when I would knock on someone's door would be, hi, you know, do you know much about the local government here in Montgomery? And most people would say, no, I don't. I don't know anything about it. And so I made it less about me. You know, I did introduce myself and say, these are my values, but I made it more like, you know, let's empower ourselves and know about how our government functions. But I did, you know, as I said, attend like Boy Scouts events, Girl Scouts events, South Asian events, take pictures, post them on social media, kind of try to get some buzz around my campaign and and what the local government was in town. And so when I won my seat, it was definitely a very proud moment. I went into it and I think everyone should go into every election thinking it's 50-50, you know, but a lot of people were not expecting me to win because my local government at that time was all Republican and there weren't even any Democrats running for several years and there hadn't been a Democrat on the council for eight years. So that was, I think, a surprise to people that I won. And um, it was thrilling. It was it was a relief <laughs> because something about being a candidate is you, you're putting your name out there and everyone is voting up or down on you. And it's you do kind of feel like it is personal, you know, like it is personal. So it was definitely like, oh, phew, you know, like I won. I made it. It's going to be OK. But then, you know, I faced all the challenges that you could expect for the lone Democrat to face with four Republicans when they had the complete power for years. And then we won two more seats. And that meant that we were going to control who was going to be mayor and that most likely I would be mayor. And my husband was the first person to say to me that first year, like, you know, you might be mayor next year. And I was like, me? No, no, I I don't need to be mayor. You know, like, I just didn't feel safe having this town that was all Republican in the 
time of Trump. You know, like we need democratic representation. It wasn't that I had set out to be mayor, but he was the first person to say this to me. And then over time, people were like, you know, if you win those two democratic seats, you probably will be mayor. And when we won, I did ask the other two electeds, like, you know, what do you think? Do you think I should be mayor? Do you think do you think one of the other people should be mayor? And everyone was like, no, no, obviously you should be mayor. You're the one who has experience of a year on the committee. Then, you know, people started thinking and asking me, has there ever been a South Asian woman who's a mayor in New Jersey? Can't think of anyone. Um, and they they looked and they found that there had been, I think, only one in the country in California before I became mayor. And they were like, darn, you missed it by here. I'm like, that's fine. That's good. And then they again started asking, you know, has there been a Muslim woman mayor? And we should have press releases about this. And you know, during the campaign, there was some mailers that were sent out that, you know, my ideas were dangerous and extreme and things like that from my opponents. And so I was wary of that added attention of like the first Muslim, blah, 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 blah. And so I kind of was like, let's just, we don't need to necessarily bring too much attention to it, but the story spread and then it gained um, that attention. And, and it's been really amazing for me how much support I've gotten from the community, from the Muslim community, from the South Asian community. And, you know, I want to be there for people. I want to be that example for girls who are attending just some mosque event or whatever, that you can do this, you can do something different. Um, and actually your community will support you. They'll be behind you. Oh, that's remarkable. And so as the first Muslim mayor in Montgomery Township, did you face any any real discrimination and or racism for your identity? If so, could you tell us about it? The first year when I was on the township committee, there was an anti-Muslim bias crime in the town. Someone left pork on a Muslim family's car. And so I started organizing these Montgomery Mosaic discussion groups to talk about anti-Black racism, Islamophobia, anti-immigrant violence. Um, but I was kind of doing it in a scrappy way. like. I partnered with like the synagogues in town, the churches in town, and was doing it in that way. And then I became mayor. And I remember um, there was supposed to be a white supremacist rally in Princeton, which is right next door. And I wanted to have an event in Montgomery to kind of be a counter event. So I was thinking, oh, should we do it in the coffee shop? And I remember the township administrator was like, just do it in the municipal building. You're the mayor, you can, you can have it here. And I was like, oh, wow. Like I have that, I have that power, you know? I think it's just so important for people to get used to that, to have a different type of person who's a different image of what a mayor is, of what leadership is. And, you know, out of 565 municipalities in New Jersey, only, I think it's 89 have women mayors. So even having a woman in this position is rare. And then if you think on top of that, a woman of color, it's it's very, very rare. So I'm, I'm proud to be a part of changing that and definitely the perspective that it brings, it it shines through in all of the work that I do. So it's been quite a journey. And I remember when I was being sworn in, it was a huge crowd. You know, it was the biggest crowd that we've had at a meeting in Montgomery. There was all sorts of media and people snapping photographs and things like that. And I just thought, this is, and I told my husband, like, this is a very unexpected life milestone. Like, I did not expect this to happen. But now it has become quite a central part of my identity and my passion and trying to do whatever I can in this role. But I think you try to rise to the occasion when you're given an opportunity like this and when the public has trusted you with something like this. You know, what's it like now 
having to hold the sense of responsibility that your constituents have quite literally granted you. And what's it like to hold that sense of responsibility and to be a leader in this protracted crisis of COVID with Black Lives Matter, with the division of this country that's happening either through misinformation or through leaders that are sitting in Washington, D.C.? What's it like to to kind of have that that sense of responsibility right now in this moment? I think generally I'm good at bringing people together and kind of putting them at ease and saying like, it's all about our community and how can we move forward? It with COVID, it was very, very scary as we saw it getting closer and closer. I will say that for sure. You know, obviously we started hearing about it first in China. We in our health department had started doing some trainings and meetings like educating the public at that time, just about hand washing, not touching your face, keeping some distance, getting gear for our EMS and things like that. Then I think when it hit Italy as hard as it did, I was reading whatever I could get my hands on about leadership in a pandemic and food supply and, you know, all the different things that you need to think about. And I think when it really started hitting Italy hard, I had some very sleepless nights just thinking if it comes here and there's like tens of people dying in my town, it just is so terrifying. So, you know, we tried to be as proactive as we could. We decided to close our building to the public on March 12th. And the school district also closed down in our town before we had a single case in town. At that time, I think everyone's aware of the lack of leadership we had from our federal government. And the guidance from the federal government was basically just wait until there's community spread. And I remember one of the professionals in the township saying, you know, why are we waiting? We know it's going to happen. You know, everywhere that this virus has gone, there has been community spread. So why would we wait when we can be proactive and stop that from happening? It was really sad to be the one to say, yes, block off all the playgrounds. And there's a playground right across the street. Uh, from my house. And I have a six-year-old who's, you know, five, then was a five-year-old daughter. And I remember the day that she came home from school and I knew that she wasn't going to be going to school the next day. And I remember she, I think she coughed once or she sneezed once. And I just started crying. <laughs> I was just like, please don't be sick. Like, this is so beyond terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did you kind of hold that sense of um, responsibility? How did you step into that space? What did you see your role as? What I saw my role was to be a source of calm and steady information for the public. And so we started doing daily updates on what our infection numbers were. So the day after we closed the schools and the township building, we had our first case in town. So we had put put an alert about that. And then we started doing daily numbers of cases. And then the, one of the other most terrible days was when I got the report of the first death in town from COVID. That was also a very sad day. And so we had to think about how are we going to tell the public about this and get the information to them, get them the facts so they can protect themselves. And then, you know, I, I started doing these mayor's videos just to just to show, just to be a person that is there at the local level to emphasize that we're all in this together as a community. What can we do to protect ourselves? I think that's what I've seen as my role. And thankfully we've had some of the lowest infection and fatality rates in the state. 
And I'm very proud of that. I'm proud of our community for abiding by the guidelines as well as they have. I'd like to pivot at this point, Sadaf, and ask you about your role and kind of how you've addressed racial injustices as it pertains to the Black Lives Matter movement. I think at one point you addressed racial injustices in your community as a public health crisis. And so I'd like to kind of talk to you about that and, and hear your thoughts. We have a very small Black population in our town. We only have about 1.8% of our population is Black. And there are reasons for that. You know, there are reasons in New Jersey having to do with redlining and who was allowed to buy property and and just the deprivation, economic deprivation of the Black community because, you know, our township is quite a wealthy township. And I talked about the stories that I'd heard from the Black community. And we held a session called Montgomery Speaks Out Against Racism. And then an organization called Monty for Justice had a huge rally in town that had about 700 people there that I attended just, you know, as an attendee. And we started doing some working sessions with members of the police department and members of our Black community in town. So trying to do what we can, say that this is a problem. I've gotten definitely some pushback from people saying that you're, if you want to imagine racism, you can see it wherever you want and, and things like that. But it's definitely a very small minority. I would say the vast majority of people in town do want to address this and do care. Yeah, that's interesting. So what would you say then is the most difficult part about your job? Like what's, what's the toughest thing you've had to deal with thus far as being mayor? The toughest thing for me is misinformation. Like I really cannot abide it and it concerns me very, very much. And so I am active on social media and that's one of the ways that people in town can contact me. And sometimes it is hard to know, like, when should I say things and when should I not? And it, it weighs on me when I hear racist things being said. There was some discussion on a completely unrelated matter. And some person was like, oh, this is why I left Montgomery. You have a Muslim mayor. They're trying to invade us from within and this and that. And I was just like, it's very hard to separate the personal and the professional, especially as an elected official, because you kind of personify the government for people. How is that sense of um, understanding who you are from the moment you kind of took office to today, how has that changed you and how you view yourself and how you kind of step into that space as who you are? It's definitely, you know, seeing myself as a much more empowered person because I am. You know, I, I'm i the mayor of a town that has, that has 23,000 residents, that has 160 employees, that has a police department. All of these things are my responsibility to some degree. And so I can make changes. I can set a tone from the top that makes an impact. I talked about the sessions that we've been having with members of our Black community in the police department. I think we're the only town in our county that's doing anything like that. And I'm the only mayor that's not white in my county. So, you know, there might be a correlation there, you know, and so owning that the experiences that I have, the things that knowledge that I that I just gain from my positionality. We have regular calls, you know, they used to be daily and then they've, they've gotten a little bit less frequent of all the mayors in the county with our county leadership. And I remember mentioning that some of the undocumented people in the county were concerned about going to food banks because they 
didn't trust that there wouldn't be some sort of immigration enforcement there. And I mentioned this on a call and someone on the call got very defensive. It was like, I don't think that the food banks are there to trap people. I'm like, it doesn't matter what the reality is. If the perception is there and there's fear, it's our responsibility to address that. And very, it very well might be that I hear about it more because I have an immigrant background. So people can feel like they can share those stories with me more. Yeah, yeah. So on that note, Sadaf, I'd like to get your thoughts on Joe Biden's recent selection of Kamala Harris as his running mate. Um, how do you kind of think of her selection in this current moment? I'm thrilled with her selection. I literally was jumping up and down with excitement because I feel like she, I've always had a good feeling about her. I really think she has the dynamism to lead and to mobilize people behind her. And I definitely see reflections of Obama and the way that Obama was able to mobilize people and speak to very diverse cross-section of our country. But it is, it's really interesting what people like Kamala Harris and people like President Obama represent to a lot of us who have like immigrant backgrounds and have connections to other parts of the world. And to me, that's the future. To me, the Trump presidency was a backlash, is a backlash against what's inevitable, which is that we're all interconnected. We have a very diverse population. And that's the direction that our country's going in. Obviously, Trump has set us back and has tried his very best to set us back and to stop that, literally stop immigration and stop allowing people to come to this country, um, stopping students or whatever, and trying to strip even naturalized citizens of their citizenship and all sorts of crazy things like that. I'm really proud and I I've been posting, you know, whatever pictures I can find of her that are online, especially, you know, with her, with her Indian family, you know, her mom in a shawar kameez or her mom in a sari. And I had a friend of mine who's from Bangladesh or her family's from Bangladesh say, it's just so relatable when you see those family pictures. And I think a lot of us growing up, we felt so different, you know, and we felt like our family pictures were nothing like those of our classmates. And we might feel embarrassed to even show those pictures or bring them to school. And so it's like a sense of relief that hopefully we're on the way to moving beyond the sense of perpetual foreignness for those of us from South Asia or the Middle East or, or other places where it doesn't matter how many generations you're here, people will still keep asking you where you're from, where your family's from. I think that it's a really great moment. I think it's a very proud moment. Um, and I have a lot of hope. I, I really, really do. I think she'll be a great leader. And I hope the American people come through and are able to vote as well as they can. And as I said, I, I see the same type of excitement that I saw during the Obama elections. And that is, I think, a good sign. It's interesting. I, I, when I think of America as an immigrant to this country as well, I think, at least for me, America has always been this place that should be unified because it's diverse. We should be unified in our diversity. And this last three, four years has been very much the opposite of that. And I have to say that it started in many ways with the Muslim band, which has been deemed unconstitutional at this point. Definitely. When I was running in 2017, I remember my parents were like, 
don't you think people from our backgrounds should just lie low right now? Like maybe we shouldn't draw attention to ourselves. And I just felt like, no, this is our chance. At least we can still do this now. Who knows what's going to come in the future if we don't try to step up. And I think that is why we saw the first two Muslim women in Congress also elected. And um, I know that there's another Muslim woman who's the mayor of Cambridge, Massachusetts now as well. So, you know, and a lot more South Asian women have been running in New Jersey for sure. And Muslim women have been running in New Jersey. Um, so I've seen like a dramatic increase over the past few years of the number of people who are running because politics can seem kind of opaque. Like, how do I even do this? And a lot of us are very focused on our professional careers and it is a sacrifice, you know, but I think right now people realize we have to make the sacrifice or some people from our communities have to make that sacrifice. Otherwise, horrible policies will be enacted that just will devastate our communities and, and the whole country. So I definitely think that it has galvanized people to get involved. And, you know, now I don't think people question, why are you in politics? Whereas in 2014, when I did the Emerge program, a lot of people were like, politics, why? You're in academia. Like, you're in a good field. Why would you do something so bad, so negative? But I, I think we have to get beyond the whole politics is just bad because there's definitely degrees <laughs> and most people who are in politics are not bad, you know, and it's only if we accept that, then the worst actors will gain power because then they can just say, oh, well, they're just as bad as we are. And um, we always have to push against that. Like, no, I don't think so. I think, you know, we want the best people in elected office. People have fought and died for this democracy as well as for the democracies from the parts of the world that a lot of us come from. And so it's a valuable system and we need good people to step up in order for it to be functional. Yeah, I think that's right. And so what I wanted to do is ask a question about your parents. I mean, your father comes from Yemen and your mother from Pakistan and you were born in Chicago and you, we started this conversation with you explaining how your father would kind of run mock presidential debates between you and your brother. And so I'm curious to know what the conversation was like when you were elected as mayor. What was that first conversation like with your father to discuss your new position? I don't really remember. I, I remember them being very proud. There was a lot of excitement. There's, there's definitely a lot of pride there, especially when I was invited to speak at our mosque in Chicago. I think that was a big thing for him and for my mom. And it was kind of nerve wracking <laughs> for me. Um, but I think, you know, it's just parents are proud when their children are accomplishing things. And this has definitely been a big thing. They got a phone call actually from some television station or something in the UK after I was elected. They're like, are you the parents of Salaf <laughs> And they thought that was so funny from like a Shia Muslim organization. Like we heard she's the first Shia like mayor in the US or something. Um, so it is, it is really, I think it's just, it's been very interesting. I think the types of questions that people ask my parents, but I hope that it opens the eyes of like people in our communities to get involved and that it's possible. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and I read somewhere online that you, you posed a, a beautiful question to your daughter I was wondering if you can kind of unpack that right now. What did you ask your daughter when, when Kamala Harris was uh, was selected as vice president for, for Biden? Yeah, so I was very excited trying to get the TV on, and my daughter was just wondering, like, what's going on? 
I said that, you know, Kamala Harris was selected to be the vice presidential candidate. Would you want to be president or would you want to be vice president someday? And, you know, she was just like, no. <laughs> so I, I, but, you know, it's it's funny with her. She definitely misses me a lot because I'm away a lot at work or I'm busy with meetings. But she's also really proud. Like when I was swearing in as mayor, she raised her hand to swear in as well. And I was talking to her about someone, you know, becoming mayor who, like a man becoming mayor. And she said, a boy mayor? That's silly. And then she started laughing hysterically. <laughs> so it's a very different world. You know, to her, it's the most naturally th natural thing in the world that her mom is the mayor. And that's just normal. And that's the way it is. It's, it's not something I, I imagined five years ago, but um, it's definitely shaped our lives. And I think when you're the first of something, what you want is for it to become a normal thing. You want it so that it doesn't need to be remarked anymore because that will really just only strengthen and serve all of our communities uh, to have these diversity, this diversity of perspective in office. Oh, I think that's great. So as we wrap up here, Sadaf, I'd like to ask you one last question. What's your message for the world? I would say it is that we should resist cynicism and keep trying. We don't know what's possible until we try. Cynicism shuts down the possibility before we even give it a shot. And it empowers the worst actors. It lets those people who really do have bad intentions gain power if we think that, well, it'll never get better. We have to try. All of us stand on the shoulders of giants, of activists who fought for our rights to give us what we have now. And we have to continue that process. We have to pay it forward. I love that. Sadaf, thank you so much for your time and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for having me. Good talking to you. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.